We are back for a Monday episode of Today in Ohio with plenty to talk about, including, I think, horsies. <laughs> it is the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Laura, you're up first. How is the thinking about drugs for controlling obesity rapidly changing? And how do drugs normally prescribed for diabetes work to effectively help people lose weight? This is such a fascinating story by Gretchen Kuda Crowen. And I was actually having a conversation with my best friend about the attitudes toward being overweight. That's something we as a society have felt is fair game to judge because mm. being overweight or obese was simply a failure of willpower or a symbol of gluttony. And for decades, no one recognized obesity as a biological defect of energy metabolism. So doctors are beginning to embrace this idea that medication may be necessary long-term like any other kind of health malady, like blood pressure. You don't just like take your blood pressure medication, get it down, and then you're supposed to figure it out yourself. So the idea is that weight loss drugs could be a lifelong solution to people who have trouble losing weight. And they have a history of failure. And we have a bad kind of a bad rep because amphetamines were found to be addictive. They were pulled from the the, the market. They scared patients and and physicians. So any kind of weight loss drug had been tightly regulated. They had to see, doctors had to see patients every 30 days. They could stay on the drug for a maximum of 12 weeks. There was a six month waiting period before it could be re-prescribed and all sorts of things. So Ohio just changed the rules on it. We were the second to last state to change it. Last is Louisiana. And th so this is really just this embracing this idea that obesity is a health problem that deserves to be treated like any other health problem. Well, what what's fascinating is is this not intentional use. Diabetes drugs turn out to work very a couple of them effectively mm -hmm. help people lose weight, but they have to keep taking right. them. The minute they stop taking them, the weight starts coming back, which has led to some sort of ethical discussion about well, is that appropriate because of what you said about attitudes on obesity, but there are lots of people who have to take drugs every right. day for the rest of their lives. I have an autoimmune thyroid issue where mm -hmm. I have to take a thyroid pill every day for the rest of my mm -hmm. life. That keeps my heart from going pitter-patter, pitter-patter. Why, why is this any less acceptable? If this is what it takes for people to get rid of all the risk factors that come with obesity, who cares if they have to take the drug every day? Right. Well, there are so many things that we all take people take drugs for every day and we don't judge people for it. We just recognize that that's just how they were born and that's how we're going to correct it. And what's interesting is like the idea, you know, it seems to be a simple formula, right? You burn more calories than you take in, then you'll lose weight. But it's not that simple. Some people have, you know, they have a set weight, their body's metabolism slows down as they lose weight. So they have to eat less and less and less in order to keep losing weight. Or if they eat a normal amount, then they gain it even more back. So it's, it's not a simple calculation. Lisa, you keep trying to say something. No, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, I'm a large woman and although my calcium cardiac score is zero, I will point that out. But you no, know, I mean, even my own doctor, when I cut down to 1400 calories, which is about 600 less than is recommended, and she's like, well, you'll have to eat less then. <laughs> You know, so, and this is from a doctor, you know, everyone still sees it as a lifestyle failure. And I'm hoping that this research starts to turn that around. Yeah, I I think this offers hope for people that, that had really not found a lot. And if the option is 
bariatric surgery or taking this medicine. Yeah, it's it's like this seems like a no-brainer. Anyway, Gretchen's story is terrific. It really gets into the history and the mechanisms. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the allegations in the Justice Department's lawsuit against Norfolk Southern over the East Palestine train derailment? Lisa, everybody's getting in on the action and going after this railroad. They are, and this lawsuit is not that much different than the one the state of Ohio filed a couple of weeks ago. So the Department of Justice is seeking to hold Norfolk Southern Railroad responsible for polluting the nation's waterways and getting them to pay the full cost of the environmental cleanup from that February derailment of 50 cars in East Palestine, 10 of them that that were full of vinyl chloride. So the chemicals from the derailed cars and the firefighting foam got into nearby creeks and rivers, and some of that ended up getting into the Ohio River. Um, Although repeated testing by the Environmental Protection uh, Administration has not found dangerous levels of toxic chemicals either in the air or the water. And as I said, Ohio filed a very similar lawsuit, but they're also asking for long-term soil and groundwater monitoring after the cleanup is done. Yeah, it sounds like everybody hears Norfolk Southern saying they're going to do the right thing, but nobody trusts them. So they're all filing these lawsuits to make sure they do what they say they're going to do. They're not seeking anything more than what Norfolk Southern is promising, but everybody's worried that the minute Mm -hmm. the glare of the spotlight moves, they'll stop doing what they're supposed to do. And these lawsuits would not allow them to walk away quietly. And Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw has pledged repeatedly to make everybody whole. You know, he's pledged to pay for the cost of cleanup. There's $20 million that they've promised for recovery for the community. And they're also uh, establishing new voluntary safety upgrades on the rail lines. Yeah, it's another good safety check. Everybody's in on it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We now know what the Cleveland Police Department meant when they said they had approximately seven horses in the police stables. We also know a good bit more about the history of the mountain unit and the high cost of housing it. Layla, this was one of the best reads of the past week by Courtney Estolfi. Let's start. What does approximately seven horses (laughs) mean? By approximately seven horses, they meant six. (laughs) When Courtney told me that, I just died. I couldn't I couldn't even laugh as hard as I wanted to. But but yes, this this awesome story that Courtney wrote was inspired by the revelation a few weeks ago that Justin Bibb was gearing up to spend $13 million on brand new stables to house the Cleveland Police Mounted Unit, which consists of exactly six horses <laughs> and three officers, only one of whom is currently trained to actually ride horses. And let me begin by saying that Bibb's team was at the council committee table weeks ago, sounding as if this project was a go. But then once Courtney turned up the heat with questions about the costs of maintaining this unit, what exactly they're used for, and whether this is a, a wise use of 13 million taxpayer dollars, given all the other pressing needs of the city, well, then quietly behind the scenes, Justin Bibb appeared to have a change of heart, because instead of answering Courtney's questions, he dispatched a spokesperson to tell her that he's uh, he's rethinking the plan. So uh, basically, though, what Courtney discovered in her reporting is that the stables can't stay where they are because ODOT needs that property for this upcoming plan to flatten out Dead Man's Curve. So this Taj Mahal of stables was designed when Frank Jackson was mayor. He, he liked it for the central neighborhood, which is where he lives. The site is, is supposed to be on East 59th Street. And he 
opted for the most expensive option that was on the table at the time, which was a 44,000 square foot facility with 18 stables, this community equestrian center, a large community viewing room and a classroom and a club room and a park. And in 2019, they thought it was going to cost $6.2 million. Now the cost is at least double that. Plus, they've spent some millions on contracts to prepare the site. And Bib hasn't told us why the cost has inflated. And Courtney discovered that once upon a time, when former Mayor Jane Campbell had to make some pretty drastic cuts to the police budget and laid people off, the mounted unit was on the chopping block. She said at the time, we have to make choices. We can do 911 calls or have a horse in the parade. But at the time, this nonprofit stepped up to save it by agreeing to pay for the upkeep of the horses. That said, those costs have reverted back to the city about six or seven years ago. So they've been, you know, paying the full freight on these horses this whole time. So it's uh, she did such a great job with this story. You got to read it. The it's a little known fact that the former mayor for vacations would go out west and ride horses. So he had an affinity for horses that maybe the current mayor doesn't have. I I do think this is evidence of why it's so important to have a robust media outlet like us in town because of the way we've covered this. It's getting a good review. City Council was asking good, hard questions like they should. But but kinda, we elevated kinda. this. Yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, you that's had where we you started. had your one off Mike Palencic, like, oh, it's a lot of horse feed. But I, I'm not sure that they were drilling into this. The only council member who took a keen interest was Richard Starr, who is the council member for that ward, and he said a lot of his residents didn't want to see it there, and you know that they'd rather have housing, affordable housing in that in that part of town than than horsey housing. <laughs> well, the the story does point out that there there are people in the community that feel like the mounted unit was used almost like a weapon right. against black protesters and that they don't feel this warmth toward the the mounted unit that maybe the people who see them in the parades do. I thought that was it, a great a great uh, addition to the story, those voices. Because yeah, there's all this nostalgia around around the mounted unit and they keep pointing to that and talking about this storied history. But there's another part of that story. And I'm so glad Courtney included that. Look, if they could do this for a reasonable amount of money and maintain it for a reasonable amount of money, then I think people would say, well, there is a use for it, but they are talking staggering costs and they also can't get enough police officers to do patrols. How can you justify taking somebody off patrols to go learn how to ride the horses? Anyway, it's a great story. Cleveland.com. Check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With oil and gas drilling coming to Ohio's state parks, very likely, we examined what happened in one Ohio water district when the drillers arrived to do their work. Laura, Jake Zuckerman really did the full thorough job on this, showing the pros and cons, but gave you a window into what could be ahead in the areas surrounding the parks. What did his story show? Yeah, this is a little known water district about the same size as the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Talking, It's the Muskingum Watershed Conservancy District. And so far, they've made $278 million in a decade. 
And they, they sold their rights to drill for fossil fuels under the, this whole water district, including a lot of natural attractions like Tappan Lake. The district also sells hundreds of millions of gallons of water from surface level sources every year to fuel that drilling, which is thousands of feet below the surface. Because remember, to frack, they need a whole lot of water to, to mix in with chemicals. So we don't know the first state park that's going to get drilled under. We know Salt Fork Salt Fork is under discussion. Nothing's been approved yet. But this basically is a glimpse of how it could work in the state. And the Conservancy District received $218 million in signing bonuses alone for these leases from 2011 to 2022. Then they get 20% of gross royalties from the gas produced. That's about $25 million a year. One year in 2014, they had $110 million. But the thing is, this district is not just recreation. That's actually, I think, their third tenant. They're supposed to conserve the environment. So it's supposed to be sort of an environmental group, but They've they've said that they had expenses that they had to pay, and this was a solution for them. Yeah, Jake showed they were broke and they had very expensive needs. This provided them the money they needed to to do the needs plus other things. They've made for better recreation. The disturbing part of the story, in my read of it, was when when you hear them talk about well, we're going to drill under it. You won't see any sign in the park. But outside mm-hmm. of the park, there's pipelines and platforms Pads, yeah. and nonstop trucks. I mean, it sounds like the truck traffic there is enough to to rumble the houses off their foundations. And so the the areas around the parks, getting to the parks, <laughs> sound like they're starting to look like the, the New Jersey Turnpike in, outside northern New Jersey. Right. Like, doesn't Jake have a big picture of like a, a, a fence with barbed wire keeping people out of some specific spot, but there's a lot of architecture infrastructure is what they said. It takes not only to drill it, but to move the material where it needs to go. So all those trucks are either hauling freshwater or wastewater to and from the drill sites. There's the pipelines, there's the pads for the drilling. And I mean, so it's everywhere around that. And this group has, this district it was formed in 19... 19- 33 after a flood killed 615 Ohioans. I had no idea. It reaches from Marietta to to Mansfield, almost over to Buckeye Lake. So it was originally supposed to prevent floods via a series of dams. But that's those dams is what led to needing money to do this. Well, the, the other complaint is they're selling the water very, very cheaply mm-hmm. to the frackers, that they're not getting the return that they should. The, the, some of the critics are saying, hey, look, you want to sell them all that water, and it's a lot, you ought to get paid for it. I think that raises a lot of interesting questions that we'll have to think about before, well, hopefully somebody thinks about before the state park drilling begins. Well, Mike DeWine says he's the state park governor. Right. Of course, he signed this in a heartbeat. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With Donald Trump being indicted for shenanigans in his presidential campaign with a stripper, we took a look at Ohio's rich history of politicians getting into criminal trouble. Lisa, what are some of the highlights from the story? And we're just talking about campaign finance contributions, because so that leaves out Jimmy Demora and some other high, <laughs> you know, profile scandal people. But probably the highest profile or the highest ranking would have been Governor Bob Taft. He pled no contest in 2004. 
five to four misdemeanors for failing to report 52 gifts of dinners, golf outings, hockey tickets, and so on. He just paid a $4,000 fine. He's the only governor in Ohio to face criminal charges while in office. And our old friend, Matt Borges, the House Bill 6 convict. Uh, He was an aide to Ohio Treasurer Joe Dieters back in 2004. He pled guilty to unauthorized use of public office for steering state securities business to a list of brokers who gave generous campaign donations. He was only fined a thousand bucks. Um, probably the maybe the biggest money-wise was GOP fundraiser Tom No. He pled guilty in 2005 to funneling $45,000 to President George Bush's re-election campaign through a several dozen or a couple dozen straw man donors. But he also stole millions from the state investment arm in a rare coin business that he ran. He was sentenced to 18 years. The sentence was commuted by Governor DeWine in the early days of the pandemic. He was released in 2022 after serving 12 years, but he still owes taxpayers more than $11 million. Closer to home, uh, Newburgh Heights Mayor, and more recent, Newburgh Heights Mayor Trevor Elkins, he pled guilty to using his campaign account for personal expenses 651 times for a total of uh, $134,000 since 2015. Um, He got a 30-day jail sentence, one-year probation, two-hour, two hundred hours of community service and a $3,000 fine. The uh, Tom Noe Coingate scandal caused and the Taft issues caused a huge Democratic win in almost all the state offices that year. And then they all got into trouble and lost. What's interesting is we're not seeing, we didn't see the same kind of rebound effect with the householder case. The, when, when the householder scandal broke, the Republicans all won all the offices again. It's interesting how times change. That was what, 10, 15 years mm-hmm. ago. And Ohioans were so disgusted by, by Tom Noe and what Bob Taft did that they elected all Democrats. What Householder did was so much worse and yet no rebound. The Republicans are still in office. You wonder what, what's in the voters' heads these days. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The last time we looked, the county was solving the problem of the juveniles who were sleeping in a county office building. Turns out, Layla, the kids are still there. Yes, and and the county basically concedes that kids will always be there because the solution that they dumped nearly $11 million into is really only a solution for the kids with the most extreme behavioral or mental health needs. Last year, when county council approved spending all that money on a contract with the centers, formerly the Cleveland Christian Home for Children, everyone made it sound like it was to solve this crisis of kids sleeping at the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center, which is an office building. They gave the centers $10.8 million to renovate a portion of their building to accommodate eight beds that would be waiting for kids who would otherwise be at Jane Edna Hunter. And it was built as a no-eject, no-reject agreement. And they even called it the breakthrough that they were searching for in dealing with this problem. And yet there are still kids staying at Jane Edna Hunter, sleeping on air mattresses and temporary cots. Yes, the centers did take in about a half dozen kids since it opened, which did alleviate the issue somewhat at Jane Edna Hunter. But when kids are dropped off somewhere in the middle of the night, Jane Edna is where they go. And they can expect to stay there for 24 to 48 hours at that point. 
And also the center says their facility is for the kids who have real behavioral and mental health problems. They don't want to mix in kids with a wide variety of needs. So the kids that fall short of having high needs are at Jane Edna Hunter. So Executive Chris Ronane says Jane Edna Hunter is the front door of the system, and that's where kids will end up sometimes overnight. But the county's goal has now shifted from ending that practice to shortening the amount of time that the kids have to spend there. Yeah, I in reading Caitlin's story, uh, I didn't find this to be a problem. It seemed like they had a rational approach. The one issue, though, was where they attest that no kid will stay there more than one or two nights but Caitlin reported, I think somebody had been there for three weeks. Yeah. And, and we're still trying to get to the bottom of exactly exactly how that facility is now still being used for that. I mean, it is still a crisis then if there are kids staying there. It's, it's a building that's not equipped for that. And, it's, and the staff is not properly trained to deal with children necessarily in that way. You've got people from all different departments who are you know, pitching in to help monitor children who are spending the night. If the intention then, if we're all going to agree that that building is going to be used for that purpose, you need to then design it to accommodate kids who are even staying there for 24 hours, 48 hours. Yeah, that's a short stay, but nobody should be sleeping on an air mattress in an office building, period. So fix, uh, then then agree, all right, you know what? Let's concede. We got to let, let kids stay here overnight but make it a place where they can and where they're properly monitored. I mean, well, you need, you need a front door. You need an intake, whether it's there or somewhere else, it does need to accommodate the kid that, that sleeps. They shouldn't be sleeping on an air mattress, right? There's really not food right. there that, 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 that they can get. So you need some sort of system where there's intake before you get them to where they ultimately will go. If they're, you're right. If they're saying Jane Edna Hunter is that building, then set it up for it so that it's safe and, and comfortable. So they're not sleeping on the floor. Uh, good, good story by Caitlin. She toured everything. She checked it out. The one distressing piece of information in there was where she said that the kid had been there for three weeks because we had believed based on everything we were being told that had ended and evidently it has not. And that's not supposed to happen. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Who is Cleveland's latest finalist for a prestigious James Beard Award for Restaurant Excellence? Laura, we're all big fans of him. Brandon Krastowski. And this is exciting news. This was announced when he was in France, actually. So can you think of anything more fitting for this? But this is uh, the Edwin's Leadership and Restaurant Institute in Cleveland. And he, he called France the motherland of our cuisine. So the category recognizes a restaurateur who uses their establishment as a way to build community, demonstrates creativity and entrepreneurship and integrity, and tries to create a sustainable work culture. I mean, I can't think of anything more identifying or descriptive of Edwin's, which people who come out of jail then are trained and learn how to work in a restaurant setting. And it it's by every account, I think I've been there once, is like fine dining. Like everybody likes it. it it's a success. And this is in Shaker Square. And he he also has a life skills center. There's a butcher, a bakery all there. It, it's become like this complex. I hear he's looking into opening some childcare there. So, I mean, hats off to him. I hope he wins. It's going to be um, the final or the winners are going to be announced in June, I believe, at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. 
That's the amazing thing about his model, because because it is high quality food, and he's built this whole village of things that come together, all on the backs of people leading leaving prison, who are then trained with skills that will carry them through their lives. What he's put together is something that's so special and so Cleveland, and he just keeps growing it. I really felt bad. He wanted to buy Shaker Square, mm-hmm. and I think he would have turned Shaker Square into the ultimate food campus where you would be dealing with people as they leave prison, and he, they fought him. They put it in some nonprofit that has no idea what they're going to do with it, and it's going to sit fallow. He would have done magic with it. I was so disappointed when he didn't get it. And I agree with you. I hope he wins. The whole nation should see what he is doing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, is the lesson here for criminals everywhere to work to delay justice as long as possible to lessen the ultimate punishment? What was the reason a judge decided that a Euclid cop who beat a man on widely viewed video should not serve prison time? Uh, Judge Guy Pierce, I'm sorry, Judge Guy Reese, who is a retired Franklin County Common Pleas judge, sentenced Euclid police officer Michael Amiot to one year probation and a thousand dollar fine and court costs for an August 2017 traffic stop that went viral and put Euclid in the national spotlight for police brutality. But in sentencing, um, Judge Reese pointed out that there was a six year gap between what when the incident occurred and the sentencing. Uh, he was found guilty by a jury last. July. And he said that um, he said that he's not here to send a message to the world with Amiot's sentence. He says, considering the longevity of the case, he thinks that the sentence is appropriate. And Amiot was uh, caught on video, on cell phone and dash cam video, um, during a traffic stop of Richard Hubbard III, who was pushed to the ground and punched several times in the face and body before being handcuffed and stuffed in the patrol car. Amiot was fired by the Euclid mayor, but an arbitrator got him reinstated. Um, He was forced to resign back in 2013 from Mentor Police Department for lying, and he was hired shortly after by Euclid PD. So... Yeah. And Hubbard, the victim, he said he wanted the maximum six-month sentence. He said that Amiot shouldn't be patrolling the streets and Euclid needs to let him go. I, I was astounded at the judge's reasoning on this. Well, so much time has gone past. And to say I'm not sending a message to the world, what about sending a message to the cop? He beat this guy badly. We all saw the video. The, the guy's poor girlfriend was begging him to stop I mean, this is as scandalous as it gets. And the judge says, well, so much time has passed. I'm not really going to make them serve time. I don't get that. I mean, how many how many other people have had extended periods between the crime and the sentencing where that's the excuse where, yeah, we're not going to make you serve the time because too much time has passed. I, I this is an astounding term. This guy, if any cop deserved to go to jail, it's him. And apparently during the sentencing, Amiot had like a, a statement that he made it was like a 10 minute statement where he kind of complained about the charges that were against him and said that he was actually following the training protocol for Euclid PD at the time. But he never did address Hubbard. And Amiot, you know, was urged by Judge Reese to address Hubbard. Um, but Hubbard said, I don't want an apology. I just want him gone. 
Yeah, he's unapologetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically saying, I followed my training in beating the hell out of this poor guy. I, it, it, this, this one was one of those that just caught your eye and thought, what is this judge thinking? And of course, there's no accountability because he's not a local judge. So people can't even vote him out of office for his ridiculous sentencing. It's today in Ohio. Has the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame cleared a major hurdle in the planning of a $100 million expansion? Layla, it looks like this thing's coming on strong. It is. The Cleveland City Planning Commission on Friday approved early stage conceptual designs for this proposed expansion and renovation. And they seem pretty stoked about it. I mean, that decision comes on the heels of the plans earning uh, unanimous approval two weeks ago from the Downtown Flats Design Review Committee, which advises the commission the designs are going to continue to evolve as the Rock Hall seeks the schematic and final approval. That's a three-step review process that will unfold this spring. But overall, it seems the project is on track for a groundbreaking late this summer or early in the fall. Now, to remind listeners of the concept here, the design calls for building a 50,000-square-foot addition in the open space overlooking North Coast Harbor on the downtown lakefront west of the Rock Hall and east of the Great Lakes Science Center. And the addition will house a public space where visitors can enter freely and descend 18 feet on ramps and an elevator from the lobby level at Erie Side Avenue to the main exhibit floor at the level of the Lakeside Promenade. And the addition will include new offices for Rock Hall staff, plus a flat floor concert venue with seating for up to 900 or 450 at tables. And it will be sheltered under this long, low, triangular roof that intersects the west side of the original building at the base of the the pyramid-shaped glass lobby. Yeah, I get that there's a big need by the Rock Hall to grow, that they don't have enough space for everything they want to do. And they're boxed in. There's not a lot of ways they can grow. But this does feel like it will separate the city from the lakefront even more. Hmm. This is going to be another building that if you're standing on Lakeside, you really wouldn't be able to to see past. I, again, I get it. It's a, it's the culture icon. It's our unique uh, uh, feature of Cleveland. Nobody else has it and they need to do it. And this sounds like by all the people that know aesthetics to be a good plan, but it, but it will separate us. Yeah, I mean that was a you know a concern of of uh, Charles Slife, who's a member of the Planning Commission and and City Councilman. He was asking whether the plans are being coordinated with that project to connect downtown to the lakefront. And so I guess that is still still a question that other people have. Well, don't worry about it though, Layla, because the Haslam's are going <laughs> to turn the football stadium <laughs> into the lakefront development lever and change the whole way it works down it there. All, Haven't you, know, you heard and the, their latest and promise? The, you know, First Energy Stadium is the hub of the lakefront. Don't worry. <laughs> Move aside, Rock Hall. We'd, you know, make room for the stadium. Yeah, because that'll change everything. <laughs> it's Today in Ohio. That closes down the Monday episode. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks for everybody who listens. Mm-hmm.